Well, in spite of the, the peppy music and the Britney Spears mic, I won't be dancing this morning. So, um, Actually, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say Britney Spears from up here, so uh, please just ignore that. Um, it's so good to be here uh, with you guys this morning, and thanks for, to Randy for sharing the pulpit with me. It's always intimidating when not only is Randy here when I talk, because usually he's gone, and that's, I have a little more, you know, I don't have to hear about it the next day. <laughs> You know, my, my dad's here as well, and so that's like doubling the ante, and uh, you know, he'll probably go home and tell my mom, and then I'll get a call, and so anyways, it's good to be here, and um, this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 13, and it's going to be a little confusing because uh, as I was preparing for this, this was the next on our schedule, but I realized that we're basically jumping from like Acts chapter 9, I believe, Basically, Acts chapter 11 maybe the last time. I, I forget exactly when. But we're jumping like, last time we talked about Acts, it was like we're hearing about Paul. And then now we're going to chapter 13, which doesn't seem very far. A lot happens in between. And this is actually 12 years later. So if you're thinking, wow, how did that happen? There were, we kind of missed a lot here. But it's still the word of God and it's still going to be applicable to our lives, I pray. And um, so if you have it and you're able, please stand with me. Uh, Acts chapter 13, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 12. Father God, I pray this morning that you would um, make your word alive to us. Father, that we would be um, awakened to the truths of this book, to what it has to say to us. Lord, that you would penetrate down into our hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elemus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You may be seated. So like I had said, we're jumping from, uh, jumping through Acts here a little bit. And uh, before this time in the, in the book of Acts, we're going from, uh, the first portion of Acts is all about um, Peter and John and the church in Jerusalem. 
Okay, so, so Peter, John, the church in Jerusalem, uh, up until about chapter 13 here. And once we get to chapter 13, uh, from chapter 13 until uh, the rest of Acts is primarily about uh, Barnabas and Saul and the church outside of Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, you know, way back in Acts 1.8, Jesus told his disciples, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so Acts 1 through 8 is the church in Jerusalem. Um, Acts 8 through 12 then is about kind of the expansion into Judea and Samaria. And then here in Acts chapter 13 through the rest of the book, and really up until this time where we are today, is about the spreading of the gospel outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, outside of Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is uh, Barnabas and Saul. That's their mission. Um, You know, it's kind of like Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. That, that we would go and we see Acts is broken up nice and neatly into these sections until we're, we come to today. You know, so a Christians, they had arrived in Antioch, which is um, in modern-day Turkey, and as a result of the stoning of Stephen and, and the persecution um, from Saul. So that's how the church in Antioch got started, is that they, the Christians had spread out after Stephen was persecuted and stoned. So it's really, really interesting that this church gets started because of persecution from Saul, and then we see Saul himself actually comes to spend time with this church. Uh, if you flip over to Acts chapter 11, uh, maybe just a page, uh, 25 to 26, we're going to see how, how Saul winds up at Antioch. So 25 and 26 of chapter 11. It says, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Barnabas and Saul, they're among the leaders in this church at Antioch. You know, and they'd stayed for an entire year. You know, Paul, Antioch, Barnabas doesn't go get Saul to bring him for like just a few days. You know, he doesn't come to do a seminar for like a week long, you know, rally the church. Instead, he comes and he stays with him for an entire year at this church. Um, you know, and this was a very strategic church because Antioch was on a major trade route. Um, this is outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, outside of Samaria. This is among the Gentiles. Um, it's in a very strategic area. It's very powerful. We see it's very dynamic. Um, and it's in a very metropolitan area, and they taught a great many people. You know, in, in Antioch, we also see that this is the first time the believers are called Christians. And this term, Christian, was used originally as a, de- like a, deris- a derisive term. You know, it was meant as an insult. When we see later that the, the Christians take it and, and they, they own that term, they use it for themselves, um, and they call each other Christians. But here in Antioch is the first time we see the word Christian. So we go back to 13. We look in verse 1. We look at it and say, In the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers. So we see there, there are five men here who hold this title of prophet and teacher. We see Barnabas, uh, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, and Saul. This picture of the leadership of Antioch gives us a great idea of the diversity that was in the church at Antioch. You know, Barnabas was not originally from, um, he was actually originally from Cyprus. And so as they go later on, as they go to Cyprus, he's kind of going back into his home territory. Uh, The next one is uh, Simeon, who they called Niger. Um, Niger is a Latin term that means black. And so this is thought to be a dark-skinned, a dark-skinned man. 
um, that Luke, actually earlier in, uh, in the book of Luke, when he talks about Simon of Cyrene, many people think that was the man that uh, was forced to carry Jesus' cross. People think that Simeon was actually that man, and Cyrene was in uh, modern-day Libya, so in northern Africa. We see the next person is actually um, is Lucius. He's from Cyrene. So again, we have some North Africans. Uh, then we have Menaean, who is a lifelong friend. Um, he grew up in the house of Herod, like a stepbrother. Um, so he was kind of of royal uh, background, if you will. Not necessarily royal, but uh, he was there with Herod as, as they're growing up. Um, and then we see Saul, who was, of course, a Pharisee. Um, he was, you know, a, a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. So we see a great diversity here just in the leadership in Antioch. Okay, this is a church that um, is just epitomizing what the Christian faith looks like. You know, Christianity was spreading not just among one particular group, and it wasn't just spreading in Jerusalem, but, you know, it's spreading among Jews, and it's spreading among Greeks, it's spreading among Africans, and nobles, and poor, and rich, and men, and women, and slaves, and free. In Galatians 3.28, later Paul writes that, you know, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, beginning in Antioch, Paul sees the people that are being drawn to Christ. You know, he's seen that the church everywhere is breaking down barriers, and all people are coming to Jesus. You know, they're all being united under this flag of Jesus Christ. So the church is strategic, and it's um, diverse, and it has like, this legendarily strong leadership. You know, these five men that are just you know, the spiritual heavyweights, if you will, um, that we can look back on. But what really drives this church, though, is their commitment to prayer and to worship and to hearing the word through, through prayer. Okay, you know, so Paul, remember, Paul and Barnabas, they're there in Antioch for a year. And what it says here at the very beginning, uh, chapter 2, or verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from Barnabas and Saul. Okay, you know, back in chapter 11, it had said, that they had, excuse me here. No, they stayed, they went to Antioch, they taught a great many people, um, and that's what they were doing. They spent their time in worship and prayer and fasting. That, that the Christians were, that's, that's what they were. They weren't about the leadership. It wasn't about who was there, but it was about them seeking after God. And we see that as they're, as they're seeking after God, that's where God is really at work. You know, we, and we think sometimes that, you know, as we become believers or, or we're growing in our faith, we're just ready and excited and, and we're, like, we're so ready for God to do something. But again, here we see that, that Paul, especially Paul, you know, from, from his great awesome conversion uh, earlier in Acts until this time, this is 12 years that God is leading him down this path. You know, where were you 12 years ago? Some of you might have been sitting in the same pew that you're sitting in right now, actually. You know, where was I 12 years ago? Um, some of you guys weren't even born 12 years ago. You know, 12 years ago, I wasn't even driving yet. You know, I was uh, still you know, b- barely a teenager, right? Um, that we see 12 years is a long time. And we see that, that God is actually at work, but he's at work in the faithfulness of his people. You know, God calls them. God calls us. He doesn't call us to a life of action, but God calls us to a life of faithfulness. Okay, Christians aren't called to action, but we're called to faithfulness. 
The primary call in the life of a Christian is not one of ministry, but it's of worship. You know, it's in the mundane, the day-to-day aspects of life that God has called us to know him. He invites us into a deep, fulfilling, intimate relationship with himself. And so followers of God are, are told to walk with God. You know, not to jump in with God, not to, to, to hop on a horse and go racing after God, but we're to walk with God. And it's in this, this day-to-day faithfulness that we see that God is at work. You know, this church doesn't start just doing things. You know, they're there, they're open to the Spirit's direction, they're, they're waiting on God to work. And they weren't just sitting there doing nothing either. You know, they're not just sitting there playing video games and, you know, watching Netflix for a year. They're not doing that. But what they are doing is they're worshiping and they're they're preparing for what God has next. Now, they don't know exactly what God has next at all. But they know they're to be faithful to their goal to worship and to prayer. You know, a a dynamic Christian life, it does not happen by accident. Okay, it doesn't happen by accident. We don't wake up one morning and realize that we're spiritually mature Christians. That's not how it happens. You know, uh, we found out um, two weeks ago that, that Megan is pregnant. And she's expecting uh, child number two. Okay? And, and, and just like a spiritual, mature spiritual life, pregnancy doesn't happen by accident either. You know, there's no such thing as an accidental pregnancy. We know how it happens. You know, we know how, what it takes to be a spiritually mature Christian. It, there, there is something that goes into that. You know, we didn't just wake up one morning, wow, how did that happen? Whoa, I have no idea. You know, we, we know how it happened. I just had to find a creative way to say that. So, um, You know, it's not a secret. When we spend time in the world, when we spend time in prayer, when we apply what we learn to our lives, you know, when we're faithful to God's call to worship, when we love God with all our heart and soul and strength, that's when God does great things in us. Okay? He doesn't necessarily do great things. We don't necessarily do great things for God. Okay, but God does great things in us. And sometimes he does them through us. He's going to do great things in those who are faithful and obedient to him. It's not an accident. Okay, I'm not talking about salvation at all. This is not that you have to do anything to be saved. That's not true. Okay, you have to have faith and believe. But to become a spiritually mature believer takes Something, okay. There's, there's things that we must do. There's, we must be faithful to the call of God in our lives. You know, some people never grow and they wonder why it is. Well, this is exactly why. They're not faithful to, the, to God's call in their life. So God calls them and, he, and the people are gathered together and God says, okay, it's time. Set apart Barnabas and Saul and send them. Set apart for me, for them, for the work that I have called them. Okay, again, this is a dynamic church. It's doing awesome things. The ministry is going strong. And God says, take two of your best guys, your two best. I want them. They're going to be gone. You know, read this, and sometimes we think, you know, God, God wants the best from us. He wants our best, you know, our, our best skills, our best time. You know, he wants our best people. We're thinking, why doesn't he take, like, those two puny guys in the back? You know, they're not doing anything. We're not going to miss them. Um, but no, he calls two of their, you know, 40% of their leadership he takes and he sends because he wants their best. And they didn't say, no, God, you know, send someone else. Um, wait just a little bit. Instead, what they do is they gather them around, they fast, they pray, they set their hands on them, and then they say, go. 
Okay, so, so we see here, again, they're not jumping into action. This isn't something that just happened out of the blue. Um, they're not unprepared. They know that God's been working. They've been having all this time, um, this faithful time in prayer, this faithful time uh, together with God. So when God is ready to go, they are ready to go. So Barnabas and Saul head to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas is from, and they begin to preach the gospel. Um, and this journey is what we know as Paul's first missionary journey. Okay? Um, their objective was to spread the gospel, to tell others about Jesus, which is exactly what they did. They would go from town to town. They would enter synagogues. They would preach to the local, um, teach the local Jews there about Jesus. Um, and they do this all around the island of Cyprus until they get to Paphos, and they run into this man, uh, Sergius Paulus, and this uh, magician here named Bar-Jesus. Um, now here in Acts 13, we see another great example of the historical accuracy of the scripture. Okay, so all the, Rome had conquered all these great little towns and communities, um, and as they would come into an area, uh, they would not just like force some ruler upon different places, but they would actually use like local uh, titles and names for people. Uh, so uh, for instance, in Jerusalem, we had uh, King Herod, um, but he wasn't actually a king, but more of like the ruler from uh, Rome. And here in Cyprus, we have um, this, this man. He's a proconsul um, named Sergius Paulus. And proconsul actually is a title that refers to a person that didn't even report to Caesar, but they reported to the Roman Senate. Okay, so, so not to Caesar, but to the Senate. And uh, historic, historically, arche- archaeologists have found... Uh, things, carvings and such, which refer to Sergius Paulus as the proconsul of Cyprus, okay? which is incredible if you are a critical scholar or if you are a secular historian. Um, but for a Christian, it's just another affirmation of the truth of the Bible. That even here in this little thing such as proconsul, we see the historical truth and accuracy of Scripture. What Luke is writing is true. So Sergius Paulus is the local ruler, which Luke identified as a man of intelligence. You know, he's, he's a man of influence, a man of power. He apparently liked to learn about different faiths. You know, he had this Jewish magician uh, that was there with him. He invites Barnabas and Saul to come and to preach and to share, uh, to share the word of God with him. Um, he's a man of, of great intellect, and he's also apparently a man of you know, diversity, uh, maybe advanced, uh, however we would want to think of him in these days. Um, you know, he's... Um, metropolitan and hip and cool, and he wants to learn all about different faiths. And we don't know exactly what they start to say to him, but we know that soon upon uh, their arrival that, that Bar-Jesus, this Jewish magician, uh, becomes very defensive. Okay, he understands that as the truth of the gospel is being shared to this proconsul, that his influence over this area is quickly going to be wiped out. Luke identifies him here as a, a false prophet, you know, full of evil and wickedness. Even though his name literally means son of Jesus, okay, he was identifying himself with Jesus. His name means son of Jesus, son of salvation, but he's the exact opposite. You know, he's supposed to be leading people into truth, and instead of he's leading them away from truth. And what we see is in areas where there are no Christians, where there are no believers, where the gospel is lacking, that's where the enemy is strong. When, when the gospel goes into dark places, it faces very um, high opposition. You know, Satan is strong in places where we are absent, where believers are absent. You know, and he hates more than anything when people come to faith, when lives are changed by the gospel. 
So here we come to our, my three points, if you're following along the sermon notes, and like any good preacher, I have to have three points. Um, so the first one is that spiritual opposition reveals spiritual obedience. Okay, spiritual opposition reveals spiritual obedience. What I mean by that is that we know, because they are being opposed, that Barnabas and Saul are being obedient to the call of God. You know, opposition is only present when things are happening, you know, where the message of Jesus is being proclaimed. If believers are silent or apathetic, if they're unfaithful, Satan's not going to oppose them. Why does he need to oppose them if they're not going to open their mouth? You know, we think of, uh, as the United States, you know, the government, the military. You know, we're not, we're not worried about nations like Canada and Greenland and, um, you know, Jamaica. You know, they're, they're not bothering us. Uh, we're not, we don't have any threats in regards to them. You know, who are we concerned with? We're concerned with people that are strong, right? We're concerned with uh, China and Russia and Iran, North Korea. These where, where there are threats to America, that's where we put our resources and our effort. Okay, Satan is the same way. That, that where there is a threat against him, that's where he is going to be strong. You know, like I said, the United States, we don't care about Switzerland, you know, they're not armed. They don't pose a threat. Satan doesn't care about a Christian who is unarmed, a Christian who is unprepared, a Christian who is unfaithful. He doesn't even need to worry about them. You know, so avoiding, spir- avoiding spiritual opposition is actually really easy. You know, just flake out on your faith. You know, don't take it seriously. Don't walk with the Lord. You know, don't know the power of the gospel. Don't share your faith. If you don't do any of those things, you'll never face opposition spiritually. You know, just be content with where you are. You know, Satan isn't concerned with impotent people or impotent churches. He doesn't care if the church isn't dynamic, if you're not taking your faith seriously. If we're not doing anything, Satan's not going to be here. That's really easy. But where God is working, where lives are being changed, when a church is dynamic and active, when a believer is faithfully pursuing God and walking with the Lord, your spiritual opposition will be present and attempting to shut things down. So opposition reveals our obedience. Um, and next, spiritual opposition actually reveals spiritual blindness. So, so Bar-Jesus was this man that was allegedly, again, supposed to be leading people into truth. But what his opposition revealed, that he was leading people away from the truth. It, the word magician, actually, that Luke uses to describe him isn't, you know, isn't really a word for sorcery, but it's, it's the, the word for the magi, you know, these, these guys that came to see Jesus when he was born. That's the same word that, that, that is being used here, this magician. Okay, so he was supposedly a wise man, um, a man that could lead people into faith. But, you know, immediately, what does, what does Paul say to him? You know, Paul says, You son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, you will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you'll be blind and unable to see the sun for a period of time. This man enjoyed having the. He enjoyed having influence. Uh, he enjoyed having power. He's desperate uh, to keep what he has, and yet his spiritual blindness is revealed. You know, and, and right after this, it says that God had had made him blind, a mist came upon him. And I don't even think this is really God making him blind as much as God is exposing his blindness to everyone else. You know, he is already spiritually blind. He already doesn't know what he's doing. He's already uh, leading uh, him in the wrong way. And so he's actually exposing the blindness of, of Bar-Jesus, and he's exposing uh, Sergius Paulus to his own blindness. You know, Jesus was talking in Luke chapter 6. He said, can a blind man lead a blind man? 
no, you know, they'll, they'll both fall into a pit, you know, that the wise man, as soon as Sergius Paulus sees his wise man start grappling around, he kind of understands the spiritual blindness that, that he had been having himself. This was his guide, this was his leader, and all of a sudden he kind of exposes, okay, this, this man is blind. You know, and spiritual opposition isn't something that a believer should fear, should fear, you know, because often it comes from those who are simply just spiritually blind. So it comes from people that need to hear the gospel. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he said that we are too apt to ban and curse antagonists instead of pitying and praying for them. He said, it is not yours and mine to shut the door in any man's face, however depraved they may be. We are to stand and entreat him to come to the Savior, regarding even if the judgments of God which fall upon him are meant to last only for a season and intended to lead him to repentance. For this is the usual design of the chastening of this life. Why should not the chief of sinners yet become a believer? Sometimes those who were the most opposed to Christ have been the first to yield and have become the bravest champions of the faith. You know, there's hope for those who are spiritually blind. This is not um, you know, a good versus evil battle necessarily. It is that. You know, but we're not supposed to vanquish our enemy. Instead, we're supposed to lead them to Jesus because they're blind as much as they are enemies. And finally, the, the third point is that spiritual opposition actually reveals spiritual readiness. Okay, it, it reveals spiritual readiness. Um, it shows that God is ready to move. It shows that this is the place where God is at work. We're being opposed. It means that we've come to a place that's ripe for the harvest. You know, verse 12 says that then the proconsul believed when he saw what occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So God's plan the entire time was for Paul and Barnabas to come to this place and present the gospel to this man and to see his life changed forever. You know, being in the South, my only experience with, like, professional sports teams from Pittsburgh is when I actually go to visiting stadiums now, right? So um, I've gone to see the Pirates in Atlanta um, play the Braves. That's not very many Pirates fans there. Um, I've gone to see uh, the Penguins play uh, up in Nashville. And just on Thursday, um, we went up to see the Steelers play the Titans, okay? Now, being in the stadium, you wouldn't realize that it was actually the home field of the Titans, though. Because anytime anything good happened, all you would see is terrible towels being waved by Steelers fans. But, but there's something happens that when you're actually in and amongst the enemy, you know, you're actually strengthened um, for your own side. You know, I'm going to be a little bit more in your face if I know that your team is against my team. Uh, if I'm sitting and watching with Steelers fans, I'm going to kind of be a little um, laid back. Uh, when I'm watching with Titans fans and we're sitting next to each other and we're, you know, kind of getting all rowdy when something good happens, someone's going to turn and be in my face. When something bad happens for me, they're going to do the same thing. Uh, you know, I'm doing the same thing. Um, so spiritual opposition actually reveals our readiness. Because of the opposition, you know, my Steeler fandomness is actually a little bit higher, if that makes sense. You know, I'm more into it with my team. You know, isn't, a, isn't an Iron Bowl game a lot more fun when you got Auburn fans and Alabama fans together? That's why it's so exciting is because you have this great uh, opposition, right? And so, so what happens is that when we have spiritual opposition, we become a little bit more sharp. Okay, the stakes are higher. We begin to understand what is really at stake. And we know it's not just about us doing the Christian thing and living the Christian life, but we can see the enemy. We know what happens when people believe the lies, when people are spiritually blind. When we see people coming to faith, it just energizes us up so much. 
spiritual opposition actually serves to strengthen our faith. You know, when we're encountered with opposition, we're reminded that there's a job to do. You know, that the world needs Jesus. Opposition actually helps to spread Christianity. We saw before that the church in Antioch started because of opposition to Christians. That they're forced to spread and to grow. You know, that Satan, every time he opposes Christians, all he does is spread them out more. And we see the greatest plan of Satan was to crucify Christ on the cross. We saw how well that turned out. And we see at at Pentecost, all the believers become on fire with the Holy Spirit, that they're sent out, and Christianity begins to spread. And here we are just a few years later, and it's spreading all over the Roman world because of opposition. Sometimes we need opposition to get us ready to go. So opposition reveals our spiritual obedience, it reveals spiritual blindness, and it reveals our spiritual readiness. Okay, when the time comes to share the gospel, we also need to remember that it's not a gimmick. You know, there's no magic sales pitch, there's no trick um, when it comes to sharing the gospel. Romans ten seventeen says that, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You know, for others to know the salvation of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, we need only to be faithful to the word. That's what we need to do. You know, the word leads us to the cross and it shows us our need and it also shows us our savior. I'm going to leave us finally with this last quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, it is doctrine then or faithful teaching which brings men to Christ. Let those who despise the doctrine of God mind what they are doing for the doctrine of the cross is only foolish to those who perish. It is a wonderful system for clearing the guilty and yet for condemning his sin. It is the glory of it is the glory of the gospel that it can at once save the sinner and slay his sin, absolve the rebel and end his rebellion. This supernatural effect, not for for a season, oh sorry, is not produced for a short time only, but forever. The gospel does not renew a sinner for a season and then leave him to re, to relapse. It gives an endless life and plants a deathless principle, and secures ultimate perfection. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you are at work in the midst of opposition. Lord, I pray, especially this morning, for those who are in the midst of opposition. Father, for those who feel like they're being overwhelmed, God, that don't know what to do, Lord, we know that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Father, we know that opposition reveals our obedience. Father, that it can strengthen us for the things that, that have ahead. Lord, we pray for those of us, Lord, who might be just anxious and waiting for you to work. God, who want to know what's next. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful and obedient to our primary call to honor and worship you in our everyday lives. God, not that it's a fun thing, not that it's a very exciting thing sometimes. Lord, but that's where our faithfulness comes from. That's where obedience, that's where action comes from. God, that our dynamic Christian faith comes from a life of obedience. Thank you for what you've done in this church. Father, we pray that you would be active and at work. Lord, ready us for whatever opposition lies ahead. And God, we're so excited about the things that you are going to do in this body and in our lives as we're faithful to your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.